Drew and Jonathan Scott here to tell you that with the American Family Insurance Home Quote Tool, you can easily design a customized policy for your dream home right from the comfort of your couch. And fun paint fact, there are over 150 shades of white, like Hello White, Fluffy Bunny, Eggshell. They get it. Explore the AmFam Home Quote Tool at amfam.com home to learn more about your policy coverage options. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Products not available in every state. And when we study the scripture, the one thing that we really become acutely aware of is that the Lord is very specific and very purposeful. God is precise and purposeful. Do you realize that he didn't just say, hey, you know what? You were born, it was something that just happened, and it was something, you know, an act of nature. But the truth is, God says that every time a person is born in this world, he had a specific pur- uh, purpose for them, even before they con- their, their mother conceived, even before um, they were pregnant, even before they were born. God is very clear, I have a specific purpose for their life. And we've been looking at Uh, One of the key verses is Ephesians 2, verse 10, which talks about how we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand or in advance for us to walk in. What does that mean? Well, it means we are his masterpiece. In fact, the word literally means a work of art or a piece of poetry. And we are what God has been writing. He is a specific reason for you. You are a work of art. You're his masterpiece. He knows exactly what his plan and purpose is for you. And out of that place of knowing who you are and and being valued as his son, as his daughter, then you can live out your destiny. You can live out your purpose. Those specific good works, that specific plan that God has for your life, you can live it out as you realize who you are in Christ Jesus. And we could talk a lot about that. There are many people today that are trying to find self-worth, a sense of identity by doing certain things. But God wants us to know that it has nothing to do with what we do, but who we are. And out of our identity, we can minister, we can love, we we can do those things that God has created us to do. The Lord has a plan not only for each of us individually, but for his church collectively. And I love one of the the descriptions of the church in the New Testament is that we are a holy nation. Come on now. Think about that. We are a holy nation. And the word nation in the Greek literally means ethnic. So we are, isn't that interesting? Because every nation is to hear the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom, according to Matthew 24, 14. But then once we come into that place where we're born again, we know Christ, then we become a holy nation. We're part of a nation. And you remember how it says in the book of Acts that in this city called Antioch in Syria, they were first called Christians. First called Christians. Now think about that. Why is it that they were first called Christians there? Well, I've done a little bit of research on this, and I want to present to you something maybe you've never heard before. But in the city of Antioch, it was a very multicultural place in the Roman Empire at that time. And if you read the book of Acts, it's very clear that there were Romans there, there were Greeks there, there were Arabs there, and there were Africans there. There were people from a diversity, and there were, of course, Jews that lived there as well. So there were diverse people there. And the interesting thing is in that city, they had kind of 
quarters, areas where the Greeks lived here, the Romans lived here, the Arabs lived here, the Africans lived here, and the Jews lived here. And they actually had these walls that separated them. And the interesting thing is, when the gospel came to Antioch, what began to take place is people from all the various cultures and ethnic groups began coming together. And it's true that at some times they had to literally jump the wall to be able to go in to the other part of the city wherever they would be fellowshipping. I know we hear a lot about walls today in America, right? But I'm saying to you that Jesus broke down the middle wall of partition. Jesus brought it so that he created one new man, one person, one nation, so to speak, one people, one nation, so to speak, so that we can be one in him. And so they looked at these people and they said, man, these guys are very similar. They talk alike. They believe alike. They have a, you know, a common value system. And, but yet they're diverse. You know, some of them are, are black. Some are, are white. Some are brown. And they're just very diverse people. So what are we going to do? What, what do we call these people? And one scholar said that the idea was, well, the only thing they have in common is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. They believe in Jesus Christ. He's their king. So let's call them Christians. This new people group is called Christians. Come on now. And in the kingdom of God, that's exactly the way it is. We are one people. We're a holy nation. We are. There's the, the Bible says there's not Jew, there's not Greek, there's not Gentile. There's not even male or female in God's eyes. But we're all equal and we're all one. And God wants us to recognize that. And we are created in him to be a holy nation. Collectively, God has a plan for his church. Isn't it interesting? When you read the New Testament, it says, to the church in Laodicea. To the church in Ephesus. To the church here. To the church there. Now, what does that mean? Were there many churches? Absolutely. They met in many places. They really didn't have buildings like we do today so they met in homes correct so they're but yet they're called the church singular it's very interesting they didn't have denominations back then they didn't have all the different places but they were considered one church and the same is true today god looks at his people that way if we believe the true gospel of jesus christ we're part of his body we're one bride we're one church we're one in him and the interesting thing is it has nothing to do with where we come from. It has nothing to do with our background, our education, or our socioeconomic class. It has to do with him only being one in Christ. And God has a specific plan for his people. Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell or Hades will not prevail against it. I will build my church. But it's interesting that he calls us into a divine collaboration with him. Some people think because it says Jesus will build his church that we don't have to do anything. But in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 10, the apostle Paul said, I am a wise master builder. So Paul was talking about his involvement in building in that whole process. But 1 Corinthians 3 6 says this, one person sows, another waters, but it's God who causes the growth or the increase. So one sows, one waters. Paul was saying, I sowed, Apollos watered, but God 
is the one who gives the increase. Now, let me ask you a question. If someone doesn't sow a seed or someone doesn't water the seed, will there be growth? No. So each part is critically important. When we sow, when we water, we collaborate and we cooperate with God with what he has in store for our lives. And that causes his body to grow. As we do our part, God does his part. And what takes place? Well, the Bible is very clear in Ephesians 5.27 that Jesus came to die so that he would present to himself a glorious church. A glorious church. That's his plan. A glorious church. An illustrious church. It means a gorgeous church. A beautiful church. A radiant church without spot or wrinkle. Let's ask a question as we look around today. Do we see this church on the earth? Well, that's kind of a trick question. Well, yes and no. But do we see a church that is absolutely spotless, stainless, glorious? Do we see a church that doesn't have any wrinkles, that doesn't have any issues? No. And for the most part, we look around and we see that the church needs some change, some adjustment. The church needs some healing. The church needs a greater work of grace to be activated in their lives. And why is this that the church is not that illustrious masterpiece that the scripture speaks of? I believe it's because man has failed to follow meticulously God's blueprint. God's blueprint. Psalm 103 verse 7 says, You may known your ways to Moses, your acts to the children of of Israel. You may known your ways to Moses, your acts to the children of Israel. In the Passion Translation, it says, you unveiled your plans to Moses. You unveiled your plans to Moses. Isn't that interesting? God made known his plans to Moses. Do you remember the story of Moses going to the top of the mountain? While he was up there 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of the Lord, he was encountering the glory of God. You know the story. His face shone. He came down. And when he came down from the mountain, what did he have in his hands? Yeah, he had the tablets. And on those tablets were written what? The Ten Commandments. Right. But do you know that that's not the only thing that Moses received from the Lord when he was on top of Mount Sinai? It's interesting when you read... The book of Exodus, chapter 20, is devoted to what we call the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. But the rest of the book of Exodus is devoted to the divine specifications or the blueprint, so to speak, on how to build the tabernacle. So Moses not only received the Ten Commandments, but he received the blueprints or the pattern from God how to build his tabernacle. And that's what we want to look at here this morning in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8 and 9. I'm going to read from two different translations. God says to Moses, let them, meaning the children of Israel, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. The New Living Translation puts it this way. Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. 
you must build this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern I will show you. You must build it exactly according to the pattern that I will show you. That's what God says to Moses. Now Moses was to build, interestingly, a sanctuary. The interesting thing is that reference really is to what would be known as the tabernacle. But the the word sanctuary is used there. That word sanctuary means a holy place. In fact, it comes from the Hebrew word Kadesh. And in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12, the Lord is called Jehovah Kadesh. So the God that sanctifies, the God that makes holy. The same Hebrew word for sanctuary has the idea of a very sacred and holy place. And it would never be used in reference to just a mundane, ordinary building or, or venue It was always in reference to a very sacred place like a house of worship. God says, build me a sacred place. Why? Because I want to dwell among you. Isn't that interesting? God had just given them the Ten Commandments, but then he says, I want you to understand something. It isn't about your outward conformity to keeping the, the laws. Thou shalt not or thou shalt. But it's more about having an intimate relationship with me. I want to dwell among my people. I want to be in the midst of my people. I want to live among my people. So all the way back in the Old Testament, even in the time of the giving of the law, God was saying, this is about having an intimate and personal relationship with me. I want to walk among my people. I want to commune with my people. I don't want a people that just merely conform outwardly to these commandments. I want to have a people that I can have a relationship with and I can fellowship with. Right in the very beginning. You know, the, the, the law kind of has a bad, gets a bad rap a lot of times, right? But the purpose of the law was to teach us how to walk in fellowship with God. Someone said, they're the tender commandments. Come on now. The tender commandments. It teaches us how to walk with God. Because if you love God, what did Jesus say? If you love me, what? You're going to obey my commandments, right? And so we love God, so we do the things that are pleasing to him. It says in 1 John. We love him, so we do what pleases him. If we're just trying to do things because we're afraid we're going to be judged, and I know there's a point for that. There's a time when if you are off the beaten path and you're, you're in rebellion toward God, that you should be afraid, and that can help you get back on track again. But ultimately, God wants us to walk before him in a place of intimacy. Lord, I love you, therefore I honor you. I do those things that you want me to do, and I run from those things that you told me that are unholy and are destructive. So God says, I want you to build a sanctuary that I might dwell among my people. Now look what he says. Build it exactly according to the divine specifications. In other words, no shortcuts, no cutting corners, no compromise you got to build this thing exactly according to the pattern that I will show you. God is very intentional. God's very precise. God is very uh, intentional in, in terms of what it is that he wants us to do. You know, it's like, how do I please God? How do I live up my life? What do I do to honor him? The Bible is very clear. 
What is it that God created you for? What is it? What is his intention for his church? We just saw it. God's saying he wants his church to become the habitation of his glory. He wants us to become the place where he dwells in and among us. It's so clear in the New Testament as well. Individually, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But then corporately in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, he says the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He wants to dwell among us. We become the habitation of God according to Ephesians 2, verse 22. It's a place where God says, I dwell in a midst you. And Jesus said in John 17, 22, Father, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them that they might be one in us. Why? That the world may know. That the world may know. I want them to become so linked to me, so linked to us, so one in us, they share in the glory. Why? So the world would know. Come on now. In Acts 4, right? Peter and James, they're uneducated, ordinary men. They're fishermen. And it says they marveled at them because of their boldness. But it wasn't their education. It wasn't their expertise. It wasn't their eloquence that attributed them as being unique and special. But it was the fact that they had been with Jesus. The fact that they had been with Jesus. They were in fellowship with Jesus, and they reflected his very nature and character. They were a people that understood what it meant to walk in the very presence of the Lord. The Bible says in Acts 5, did you ever think about this? In Acts chapter 5, it says that people heard that there was something very unique about Peter in that the presence, the anointing, the glory of God was with Peter. And if we can just bring the sick, and we can just bring the people that are tormented by unclean spirits, and we can lay them on the streets in Jerusalem, and perhaps Peter will walk by, and just his shadow, just his shadow will touch them. And it actually says in that same chapter that all of those people and it says from the entire countryside gathered, and it says they were all healed. That's what it says. I think we need to read that again. Are they, why is it? What was it? Is it because Peter had memorized the four spiritual laws? Was it because Peter had studied how to preach eloquently? Listen, you can preach articulately. You can preach, and you can yet fail to be the person that God created you to be, to have the impact that he called you to have because you don't have an intimate relationship with him. You're ministering from giftedness, not from the place of the glory. And we have to move into that place where it's his anointing, it's his power, it's his glory in me that causes people to experience change in their life. So that when I pray for somebody, something happens. Something happens. I, I don't know about you, but I'm sick and tired of hearing about praying for people and nothing happening. Right? When I read the Bible, I see miracles. I see things happening. And there was a time when, you know, this man brought his son to, to Jesus' disciples. Jesus was up on the mountain. And he said, I, they, you know, they tried to minister to him, but they weren't able to heal him. They weren't able to deliver him or set him free. And so when Jesus comes down from the mountain, they run to him and they say to him, Jesus, you know, I brought my son to your disciples to heal him, to deliver him, but it didn't happen. It didn't work. And what did Jesus say? Did he say, well, why are you asking me? 
Why are you asking me? And, I mean, come on now, the same spirit that's in me is with them. Did he say that? Why bother me? Listen, did he say, well, must not be the will of my father. God must be trying to teach you something through this. Did he say that? He rebuked the unbelief. He said, oh, faithless and perverse generation. How long shall I put up with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And as the boy was brought to Jesus, the spirit in him began to manifest. And this boy was set free and he was healed and delivered. Later on, disciples come to Jesus. So, Jesus, what's up? Like, how come you were able to do that but we weren't? And Jesus talked to them, depending on which account you read in the Gospels, about having faith the size of a mustard seed or as a mustard seed. Or he spoke to them about prayer. Prayer prayer and fasting. So the idea is this. What? Sometimes, some miracles, some kind, don't go out by anything or by nothing, but by what? Prayer and fasting. So in that place of intimacy, in that place of prayer, there is power. There's faith. And out of that, Jesus ministered life. I want to challenge you as we're reading the book of Acts together, guys. That's ordinary Christianity. It's ordinary Christianity. When you read all of these stories and you hear about people being healed, delivered, set free, please understand that God wants us to be Acts chapter 29 today. We're to live out. There's only 28 chapters in Acts And it ends like open-ended almost. And God wants us to be that type of people, that type of church, that we carry his anointing, we carry his glory. And how do we become a people that his presence is so strong and so real with us? Because the Bible says the gospel that I preached to you was not in word only, but in power, much assurance, and in the Holy Ghost. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. How come... That is a reality in Paul's life, in Jesus' life, in Peter's life. Why is that? There's only one thing. They're not any different than us. They're not any better than us, but they consecrated themselves. They surrendered their lives to Christ. They lived in a place of communion and intimacy with God. They didn't just show up to church on Sunday and say, I did my spiritual and religious duty, I'm good. But they developed, they nurtured a relationship with the living God. With Jesus Christ himself. And that is something that we desperately need to experience once again in the church today. I love Jesus said, how is a man, how is a woman sanctified? That same word, sanctifying, you know, the idea of make holy, a sanctuary, a sacred place. In the New Testament, Jesus says this in John 17, verse 17. Father, he said, sanctify them. He said, as I have sanctified, you sanctify them. And he says, what? Sanctify them by the truth. Well, then what does he say? Your word is truth. We're sanctified by truth. Your word is truth. So it's as we build our lives on the pattern of the word of God that we experience a sanctifying work. It's the word. I sent my word and I healed them. He sent his word and his word brings change. His word encourages us. His word quickens us. 
in the month of August on, on Wednesday night, we're going to be going into a teaching series on how to hear the voice of God. The Bible says, I can show you repeatedly that God still talks today. And somebody says, well, he talks through his word, his scripture, in other words. Absolutely. But do you know that God still talks today? It's very clear. There's so many. I mean, if you haven't experienced that, I want you to experience it. His, when God talks to you, it's not going to contradict what he says in his word. It's not going to be something that's bizarre. It's going to be helpful. It's going to give you direction. It's going to give you encouragement. It's going to give you purpose. But God wants you to know that you can hear his voice. You can, you can experience him in different ways. We've, when we're reading Acts 2, he talks about young men and old men, dreams and visions. He talks about how we can experience him in that level. It's an amazing thing. You know, Jesus talked about that in John chapter 5 in particular. He said of the Pharisees, they diligently studied the scriptures. But he said they refused to come to him that they might have life. Wow. Think about that. You diligently study the scriptures. These scriptures, they testify of me. Now, do you know the Pharisees memorized a lot of the Old Testament scriptures, the Torah? And yet, he says, they refused to come to him. They knew the word of God, but they didn't know the God of the word. They had no relationship. They had no intimacy. And so they were judgmental. They were critical. You know, how many know that sometimes we don't always get it right? Hey, I think God told me this. And it ends up... It wasn't God. It ends up, you know, we, we, we read something in the scripture and we think God's saying one thing to us and it can create a confusion in our lives. We, we need to examine our hearts. I get that, but we're reading something and then we're saying, well, is God saying that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not living a, a life that's pleasing him? And, and I've seen people that just read the negative things in the scripture and they live under condemnation all the time. Because they don't understand the full counsel of God's word. I mean, if you, if you just read all the positive things all the time, too, and yet you're not living a holy life, then there's a problem with that, too. But we have to know that Jesus is grace and truth. Jesus is both. He loves you, and he loves me. He died for us. He didn't say, if you guys clean your lives up, get your act together, and I'll forgive you, and I'll reconcile you to the Father. He died for us when we were a mess. He died for us when we were broken. He died for us while we're sinners. Even the Bible says while we're enemies of God, he died for us. But the fact is, he loves us so much, he's not going to leave us the way we are. He wants to change us. He wants to transform us. He wants us to make, to make us more like Christ, his son, himself. Now, we build our lives on the pattern of God's word. That's what I'm trying to say. As God spoke to David, I'm sorry, to Moses, and he gave him a pattern to be able to build the sanctuary. We read later on in 1 Chronicles 28, verses 11 and 12 and then 19, that David gave his son Solomon plans to build the temple. The portico, its buildings, its storerooms, its upper parts, its inner rooms, the place of atonement. He gave him, it says, 
the plans of all that the Spirit had put in his mind. All this, David said, I have in writing as a result of the Lord's hand on me, and he enabled me to understand all the details of that plan. Isn't that awesome? You think like David just hired some expert, you know, some architectural engineers and said, hey, you guys, I want you to build this temple. Now, I can't do it, my man of bloodshed, but my son Solomon's going to do it. No, he received the blueprints from God. Isn't that awesome? In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul, who is an apostle, refers to himself as a wise master builder according to the grace of God. Paul says, I'm a wise master builder. If you read the context, he's talking about how God had used him to build churches. And he's specifically saying in this that I am a divine architect. That's the meaning of the Greek word where it says master builder. The idea is of an architect, but it's not just an architect. The, more, the idea is more of an architectural engineer. So in God's kingdom, he gives gifts to people today to know how to build, to know how to build things, meaning build his church. And we have to build on the right foundation, don't we? And in Jeremiah 1 verse 10, it talks about how in the days of the prophet, there were faulty foundations that were laid. And before Jeremiah could build on the right foundation, those faulty foundations had to be torn up so that you can build and plan. He actually uses four terms of destruction and two terms of construction. And that's the way it is sometimes, right? Jesus said, you've made the word of God of none effect by your tradition. Sometimes it's the traditions of man that are hindering, making the word of God of none effect. Think about that. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you have made God's word powerless in your lives because of your religious traditions which you value over God's word. Wow. That is crazy. But that's what he said. So what do we do? We go back to the blueprints. We go back to the pattern. So Paul says, I'm a wise master builder. I'm going to build on the foundation of Christ. We know Paul didn't have the New Testament. Paul wrote most of the New Testament. But he had an understanding of the Hebrew Scriptures, but he also had a sense in which there were things he said God directly showed to him. God directly spoke to him and revealed to him. So there's architectural engineers. Then going back to the example of Moses. Moses receives the blueprints. An uh, architectural engineer needs to be able to read and interpret blueprints. Moses understood what God was saying. Moses, you tell the people to build me a sanctuary. Who was to build it? The people. He didn't say, hey, Moses, build me a sanctuary. He says, Moses, let them build me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. Let them build me a sanctuary. Meaning, this isn't about you doing this on your own, Moses. I need my people. I need my holy nation. I need my church in the wilderness, so to speak, to build me this holy temple. I need everybody to do their part. So as you continue to read the narrative, what we see take place 
is God ends up speaking to Moses, and he says in Exodus 34, verses 2 and 3, Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, everyone whose heart was stirred to come and do the work, and they received from Moses all the offering. So here is Bezalel and Aholiab and many other gifted people, and God had put in their heart wisdom. God had also stirred their heart to do the work. And I'm praying today that some hearts are being stirred to do the work of God, to see the kingdom of God built up, to see lives transformed because we're not here for ourselves. We're not here just to have a comfortable life. We're here to build God's house. It's not a physical building. It's a spiritual building, but it's a place of the habitation of his glory. So there are builders as well. And these are very skilled people. God is set in the body all the gifts, all that is needed to build his church effectively. Then the next thing, what does he say? There are financiers. Exodus 25, verse 2. Exodus 25, verse 2. Moses, speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take, what does he say? My offering. Wow. Moses, tell them to give me an offering. Come on now. God is saying, I want an offering. And what was he referring to? Guys, cash, gold, silver, whatever, assets, things. Well, I don't have anything to give God, but I'll pray. And Prayer is important. I'm not, I'm not undervaluing prayer. But God says, tell them, to every one of them, to give me an offering. Now, what ends up happening? He says, make sure that you receive my offering, my offering, from those who give it willingly from their hearts. What does that mean? Antithetically, don't receive the offering if they give it grudgingly. Hilarious generosity. Under compulsion. I don't want to give. I can't afford to give. But I'm going to just do it because I feel that Pastor Lynn is beating me up this morning. <laughs> no, what the truth is, it, we got to give it from our hearts. This is about God. This, he's the one who says, give it to me. And why? Because we're building the most important enterprise in the world. We have the, we have the greatest construction project here going on. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ that's going to heal people's minds, their bodies, set them free from sin, deliver them from the darkness of the enemy, and cause them to be propelled into their destiny. We have the greatest cause and purpose. Come on, talk about fund me. We need to fund this thing. We need to fund it. We need to get behind it with our money, with our time with our gifts, with everything. We have the hope of the nations, Jesus Christ. Wow. Now, let me break this down a little bit more. Moses is the visionary. Moses is the one who receives the blueprint or the plan from God. God says, Moses, share with them what I want done. So he does it. 
then we find that God is already preparing people. And he's giving them, interestingly, supernatural gifts and wisdom. It's not just natural abilities that Bezalel and Aholiab operated in. It was the anointing of God. In fact, the Bible says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be witnesses unto me, right? The word power, dunamis, can also be translated divine ability. Divine ability. What does that mean? That it's not just our natural gifts. It's divine ability. It's interesting. We think about, well, I just do what I'm good at. God wants me to just do what I'm good at. That's not always the way it works. That's not always the way it works. Do you know, if you think about Jesus and the team that he had, the 12 apostles, there was a man in his team named Matthew. Matthew worked for the IRS. He was a tax collector, the equivalent of the IRS. Guess who Jesus made his treasurer? Judas, a thief. Now, Jesus didn't say, man, guys, tell me what you're good at. Tell me, like, what's your gifts, what's your degree, whatever. He didn't do that. And he said, okay, Matthew, that's a no-brainer. You're going to be my treasurer. He didn't do that. Because God chooses the foolish. He uses the foolishness of this world. It's not about our natural gifts. And then Peter and John, right, he, they are fishing. And then he says to them, okay, guys, you've been fishing. You haven't caught anything, so let down your nets into the, in the deep. And then there's this amazing, abundant catch of fish. They pull their nets in. And then what happens at that point? Luke chapter 5, they said to Jesus, Peter looked at Jesus and he said, Peter, he said, Jesus, we got a good thing going on right now. There's potential. Let's use your gift, my boats. Let's partner 50-50. Dave, we can do, we can do amazing things together. He didn't do that. What did he cause Peter to do? Leave your nets behind, forsake all to follow the call. Come and follow me. And the Bible says after that amazing catch of fish that they left it on the seashore. They just left the fish sitting there. I'm sure other people grabbed it, but they never even used it. Why? Because it was an illustration that as I blessed and anointed you to do this in the natural so I can bless and anoint you to be productive in the supernatural. That you're going to do things not according to your gifts, not according to your, to your talents and, and the things that you've done in the past, but I am going to use you to do supernatural things. I'm going to endow you with special grace to do things that are going to cause my body to grow, they're going to cause my glory to be revealed. And because it's not of your self, of your human ability, he said, who's going to get the glory in all this? He is. He's going to get the glory in all of this. So God has those that he blesses to build. Then financiers. Now, let me say something about that. There's a difference between, listen to this, a financier and a person who provides finance. There's a difference, right? We all provide finance in the sense that 
If you've ever given money for God's work, you provide finance for his work, right? But there's some people that are kingdom financiers. That's their gift. God has given them wealth to see his kingdom extended on the earth. And man, they are passionate about that. That's, that's something they're very passionate about. So what does he say? Going back to it, let me, let me summarize this, and I'm going to close this morning. The first thing is we all have a place to be able to receive revelation from God, to be able to understand what it is that he's instructing us to do. What is it? What is the vision? What is the purpose? What is it that you want me to do with my life, and how does it fit into the overall scheme of your kingdom advancing on the earth and your church not being overcome by the gates of hell so that your church will continue to grow and to be built. Then use your gifts. What gifts? What do you have? What can you offer God? What is it? Has he put a passion in you, a desire in you? God, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, is going to give you gifts. His Spirit's going to come upon you. I know people, there's, there's a young woman, well, I guess she's not that young anymore, man. I guess we're all getting old, aren't we? Probably in their 40s now. Like, she's from Canada, and she's a worship leader. Her name is Heather Clark. Heather Clark was at a church, and someone spoke to her and said, I believe you're going to lead worship. God's called you. You're going you're to play instruments, and you're going to sing. And she looked at... This person has said, I can't sing in key. I don't play any instruments. I have no idea what you're talking about. You got the wrong person. Five years later, she's traveling the world, leading worship in a prophetic sense, ushering in the presence of God, and she's playing guitar and keyboard and other instruments, multiple instruments, five years later. She attributes it to the power and the Holy Spirit. Guys, think about it. That God can do that with us. He can take us and raise us up for his purpose. So what's your purpose? The Bible says in Acts 13, 36, David served God's purpose in his own generation. We all can give. We can all pray. And we all should. But we need to serve God's purpose in our generation. I love that verse. David served God's purpose. Are you serving God's purpose in your life? Do you know what it is? If not, it's time to seek the Lord. Time to say, Lord, what is it that you want me to do? What is it? And somebody says, I can't do anything. I, I, I'm just not able to give him my time. I don't know what my gifts are. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Can you pray? Yes. Every one of us can pray. And seek God. What is it that he wants you to do? If there's things in the past that maybe the Lord had put and tucked in your heart and your spirit, but for some reason you just haven't begun to walk that out, it's just something that you know, you've maybe even forgotten about, then maybe it's time to see the Lord resurrect that dream. Maybe things have distracted you and you've been disappointed and, and discouraged it's time to allow the father to resurrect your dreams to allow you to begin to live out his purpose in your generation that's what you're called to do 
in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 2, it says, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it. What has God put in your heart? What is it that he's called you to do? When you step into your purpose, you will flourish and be fulfilled, and the body of Christ will also grow. God needs you. Do you realize that? We need you. The church needs you. I need you. And you need me. We are dependent upon one another. We're not codependent, but we're interdependent. And we need each other. That's the way God has created his kingdom to be. Ephesians 4.16 in the New Living says, As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow. So that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Wow. Isn't that awesome? 